Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, A Firm Grip on the Gospel. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, 17 to 26, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Your Sins Are Forgiven. Is there anything that can be said that's more liberating than the words, your sins are forgiven? I mean, think of the person who has incurred a crushing debt, a debt that they're unable to repay, a debt that's going to reduce, you know, the payer to a life of servitude, and then to receive a letter from the bank, your sins are forgiven. Go free. Well, it's hard to put the emotion of that into words. You know, that's freeing. And we consider the hurt between a child and a parent in which all communication between them has died. And wherever they see one another in a public setting, the eyes are averted, both sides go their way. But underneath that harshness, both hearts are throbbing with pain and longing for the other. And consider that one of the two parties has the power to forgive and to remove the years of hostility and pain and bring reconciliation if that person will not do it. And only increases the accusation, then the division and the raw wound of emotional pain can carry on through a lifetime. But if the person who has the power to forgive actually walks across no man's land and stretches out his or her hand and says, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. I wish to wipe away all the pain. I wish to destroy the wall between us. At that time, the freedom that is felt is so great that mere words will not describe the liberation that forgiveness has wrought. If this is true in human terms, how much more is the forgiveness that is offered up should God wipe away the debt of our rebellion against our Creator and open a door to relationship with Him? Well, Luke chapter 5, 17 to 26 tells of just that story, the story of forgiveness and the story of the ones who wanted to prevent that from happening. So let's study this story together. And as we do, think of what's offered you in the forgiveness that Christ brings. Luke recorded that when the angels announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds, the angels proclaimed that in the city of David has been born a Savior. Now, the context is that although he will save from disease and all the infirmities that people bear, he will save from sins. I mean, don't let the fact that you've heard of forgiveness before, maybe you've experienced it, don't let the wonder of that ever escape your eyes. You know, some time ago, after seeing a wonderful young woman come to faith in Christ, she wrote me a letter. She said that she had, in the past, worked as a tree planter in the forest, and when it rained, the clay would stick to her boots, and the weight of that would make her legs heavy. And after a long day of working in the bush, you know, she would take off those heavy mud-plastered boots, and she would feel so light, she felt as if she could fly, and she told me, that when she left my office that day and after she had confessed her sins and she'd yielded her heart and soul to Christ, all her sins were gone. She was forgiven and she felt like she could fly. Let's read our text. Luke 5 verse 17. That's a place of beginning. One of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Luke is still concentrating on the early ministry of Jesus in Galilee, and he doesn't on this occasion tell us precisely where Jesus was teaching, but Mark also mentions this incident, and Mark tells us all this happened while Jesus was in Capernaum, his adopted hometown and his base of operations. 
Jesus is teaching as he's been doing everywhere. And by now, the audience Jesus has every time he teaches is just becoming larger and larger. I would imagine people are streaming to Capernaum because although Jesus taught in all the villages and towns and cities, he'd he'd always come back to Capernaum. So if you went somewhere, you could go there and see him. But now we come to see that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have come to take an interest in Jesus, and no doubt it was not a benign interest. And as Luke tells us, some of these men have come as far away as Jerusalem. Jesus' fame has spread that far. And most of us know something about these men, but let's do a little review, shall we? There were, at that time, a number of branches of Judaism. The Sadducees, those were the powerful, wealthy ruling class. The Essenes, well, they're not mentioned in the Bible. These are the monks who live out in the desert. The Zealots, these are the men who wanted to violently overthrow the Romans. And the Pharisees, they were a non-priestly class given to making sure Israel was keeping the law and were faithful to the covenant. They taught that because of the unfaithfulness of Israel in the past, there had been the Babylonian captivity and so forth. And so the way forward was to lean hard into obedience to the law, to be faithful to God. And they were a complicated group, these Pharisees. They had developed a tradition, a tradition through history that described how to apply the law. And from that tradition, they would give rulings as to how to apply the law in your individual life. Most of us who read the Bible are quite familiar how they applied their traditions to, let's say, Sabbath keeping, so much so that the traditions or the historic rulings were far more important to them than what the Scripture actually taught. Luke also tells us that the Pharisees were accompanied by the teachers of the law. So these were religious lawyers. They would rule on the legality of an issue from a Pharisaic viewpoint. And among them, they would frequently disagree. Nonetheless, The religious power of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law was profound. And so when they showed up, no doubt, one would have expected that they would have disagreed with Jesus as well as their presence might have been an intimidating presence. Now, in spite of their presence, Jesus is carrying right on in what he's doing. He's teaching, but says Luke, the power of the Lord is on him to heal. And we have to assume, as in all of Jesus' meetings, the sick are being brought to hear him and they want to be saved from disease. They want to be healed. But because wherever Jesus would go, the crowds were increasing, and they were increasing dramatically, one would also imagine it's difficult to get near him. So Luke 5, 18 and 19. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. The bed on which the man was laid, Luke describes it as a bed. Mark, in recounting the same event, uses a different word. It's sometimes translated as a pallet. Both words mean that the man was lying on a stretcher. But because four men would have been required to carry him, we have to imagine that to get that large contraption through the crowd would have been near to impossible. And so since Jesus was teaching in a house with windows and doors open as everyone's gathered around it, these men found a way to get that paralyzed man on the pallet up to the roof. The roof would have been flat, and in normal houses in that place and that time, the roof would sometimes have served as a second story where people would gather. You know, at first glance, it seems like the men are damaging the roof by opening up the tiles and letting the man down. But but in truth, these men do make a hole in the roof. 
Now, roofs would have contained beams, and those beams would have been overlaid with brushwood and tree branches and then topped off with mud or clay with chopped straw. Now, it wouldn't have been difficult to make a hole in that, and might I add, I don't think it would have been difficult to repair it either. But Luke tells us that at the top of that, there are a series of tiles. They're sturdy squares that complete the roof. And so the tiles have to be removed. The hole has to be made. The beams are used for the stretcher bearers to stand on. And the men lower the lame man on his stretcher through the roof. It must have been quite a scene. Jesus is teaching, and you can, if you're in the house, hear people making a hole above him. The men are working, and eventually the paralyzed man is lowered in front of Jesus. It you know, must have been dramatic. And just so that we heighten the drama, there's no doubt as to why they're doing this. The four men are lowering this man in front of Jesus because they have compassion on him, and they believe that Jesus will heal him. You know, it's a wild, crazy belief, but they think that their friend who has been a paralytic is going to walk home that very day. That's what it means. Verse 20. And when he, that is Jesus, saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three describe this incident, and all three mention that Jesus saw their faith. That is, Jesus saw the faith of the man on the stretcher and the faith of the men who had lowered him from the roof. To which we who are reading this must ask, you know, what kind of faith did Jesus see? Was it simply that he saw they believed he had the power to do it? You know, for at the outset, I mean, that's obvious. I mean, why else would they have done this? But it's the answer that Jesus gives to their faith that actually startles us. Why does Jesus respond by saying the man's sins are forgiving? He doesn't respond in this way to others who are coming to him for healing. Why to this man? And I don't think that Jesus connects the paralysis of this man to his personal sin. At least he gives no indication that he's doing that. You know, the fact that Jesus announces this man's sins are forgiven, that's noteworthy. I mean, this man must have believed something more than that Jesus could heal him. In short, this man had some kind of faith in the actual person of Jesus, and that led to the discussion of forgiveness. Faith is never disappointed. Back to the Bible, Canada can testify to the hand of God in and through this ministry. As one of our listeners reports, we want to be part of what God is doing through Back to the Bible Canada, not just in Canada, but overseas. That's why we support. Beyond a doubt, God will accomplish His purposes. He chooses to employ His faithful people as His hands. As we begin a new year, may I ask you to consider a financial gift to support and sustain this ministry, or perhaps even consider becoming a monthly partner at the beginning of 2024. Your generosity allows us to enter into this new year fully supplied for what the Lord has in store for His kingdom. To give a gift or become a monthly partner, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The man who lay on a stretcher before Jesus, the paralytic, he couldn't have known that in a little while, the Jesus before whom he was lying would die on a cross to satisfy the justice of God for the rightful condemnation of this man. 
Now, this man, like all the sons and daughters of Adam, this man was born into sin, but he had also willfully sinned the way in which all of us have. He had broken the law of God, and such a sin against God is an infinite crime, for it's committed against an infinitely glorious God. This man was rightfully deserving of divine justice, which would utterly and eternally condemn him. But whatever the level of this man's faith was, he had come to believe, along with others, that Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus was ushering in the long-expected kingdom of God, and as such, Jesus would end all sin and all rebellion. This man didn't just have faith that he would walk home that day. He had faith in Jesus. He believed in the Son of Man. Much later after this account and after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, Luke would tell us about another man much like this one. This man was not a paralytic. Indeed, this man's legs worked just fine, but he also had a job and he was taking care of his family. He was the city jailer in the city of Philippi in the northern part of Greece. Two men were imprisoned in his cell that day, certain Paul and his associate Silas. They were imprisoned for preaching Jesus, and in the middle of the night, there was an earthquake, as was frequent in that part of the world. The earthquake was so violent, it broke apart the prison doors, and it would appear that all the prisoners had escaped. And in the ancient world, that would mean death for the jailer. Rather than face the cruelty of what was to come, the jailer got out his sword and prepared to fall on it and end his own life. And at that point, Paul cries out, don't kill yourself, we're still here. The jailer, who had just heard Paul preach about Jesus, came running into Paul's cell, and he trembled and asked, What must I do to be saved? And here's what he meant. What must I do to have this horrible weight of my sin and of my rightful condemnation in the day of judgment removed? And Paul said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Saved in the sense of hearing the voice of God saying, your sins are forgiven. The judgment that hangs over you no longer hangs over you. Your trust in Jesus has removed all of that. Now, clearly, the jailer would then learn how it was that Jesus could remove his sins. He would learn about the cross, but the jailer, believing simply meant throwing himself before the feet of Jesus in humility and receiving the mercy of forgiveness. That's no different from this paralytic. This paralytic had come surely to be healed, but he had come believing that Jesus was who he said he was and believing that Jesus was sent from God and that this Jesus was the connection between God and himself. This man was reconciliation with God. And Jesus, says Luke, saw his faith. And so in that moment, Jesus proclaimed that every sin this man had ever committed against God was now removed. Like those boots in the forest, heavy mud stuck on them. Suddenly the weight of this man's sin were instantly gone. And we need to stop and consider this glorious truth that if this man had been taken home that day, still on a stretcher, he would still have encountered the greatest moment of his life for this moment counted for eternity. But if, on the other hand, this man had been healed and walked home and yet had continued on in his sin, this moment would have been a matter of small solace indeed in the light of eternity. But as we've seen, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are there, and they have an instant reaction. Right now, as Jesus pronounces the forgiveness of sins, they say he's breaking the law of God. 
Verse 21, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, please understand that when this question is being raised, the paralyzed man remains right there, still paralyzed, lying on his stretcher, saying nothing. Over top of his disabled body, there's about to be a theological debate. You know, for many people today, that's exactly what they think about theology, isn't it? Questions about words and phrases while the needy and the suffering are left in the condition they've always been in. But I would argue, listen, the question the Pharisees raise is not insignificant. That's because it's possible to delude someone into believing their sins are forgiven while they're still under the judgment of God. See, that's true. Many a person has been deceived about their eternal salvation. Later on, Jesus would affirm this. Matthew 7, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say that many would say, Lord, Lord, did we not? And then they would mention things, and God would say to them, depart from me, you lawless individuals. So the question of whether we're forgiven of our sins and who is the object of that forgiveness, that's not a vague question that's only for theologians while paralytics lie helpless at their feet. This is a question of eternal significance. Notice what the Pharisees say. Who can forgive sins, they ask? Only God can. The Pharisees claim that Jesus blasphemes God by violating the majesty of God. Jesus claims he can do something that only God can do. And on the surface of it, I think they're right. Forgiveness for crimes against God can only be forgiven by God. I mean, think of it this way. You can't forgive someone for the sins that they've done against someone else. You can only forgive someone for the sins that they've done against you. So how can Jesus forgive this man's sins when the sins were done against God? I mean, after all, Isaiah 43 verse 12 says, I, I am he who blots out transgression. That is, when the word I is twice repeated, it's done for emphasis. God alone can forgive sins. To claim to be able to do it on behalf of God, that is blaspheming. So let's continue to read verses 22 and 24. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now notice that Luke says that Jesus perceived their thoughts. Now, even though Luke doesn't explicitly say it, it seems that the questioning has been verbal. It's not that they are thinking he's blaspheming. They're actually saying he's blaspheming. So what's left to perceive about their thoughts since they've already made their thoughts public? But another translation says Jesus perceived their inward reasonings. Uh, there are inward deliberations or inward motivations for speaking as they did. All of this was clear to Jesus. Jesus knows what led them to do what they did. For instance, they could have interpreted the statement, you know, that paralytic sins are forgiven, that Jesus had received a divine revelation as a prophet that the man's sins were forgiven. But Jesus knew that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were trying to paint him in the most negative light possible because we find out later that they're deeply jealous of his power as well as his popularity. That's their motivation. But then Jesus cuts through all of that very quickly. He asks the most forthright of questions, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise up and walk. Now look, See, on the one hand, we could argue that to forgive someone of their sins is a great deal more difficult than to heal them. 
But that's from a spiritual perspective. From a physical observation, it's far easier to say your sins are forgiven when the test of that awaits the world to come. But to say rise and walk, that's observable right now. And when Jesus says, so that you know or that you have demonstrable proof that the Son of Man can forgive sins against the infinite holiness of God, let me give you proof of my power. And he says, rise, pick up your bed and go home, verses 25 and 26. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorify God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Yeah, it was a moment. You know, Jesus simply used words, rise and walk. But again, God just used words, let there be light, and the universe sprang into existence. So those words, rise and walk, the atrophied legs of the legs of that man and the disease that gave rise to it, all of it was instantly corrected. The man jumped up and walked. The reaction is twofold. The first is understandable, amazement. Jaws drop, pupils dilate. One can hear breath being sucked back. Perhaps some people even shouted in amazement. It's the reaction we'd expect. But the second, they glorified God. They glorified God because they knew that they had just witnessed that it was possible that this man, Jesus, could speak a word and all sins would be forgiven. See, that's the evidence that Jesus has the power to forgive. So whom the Son forgives is forgiven indeed. And if Christ has forgiven your sins, they are indeed gone. You are free. Thanks for your message, Sean. Let me ask you, in a world where there's signs and wonders, do they overshadow the significance of the miracle of forgiveness? Well, they do if we let it. Thank you for that question, Ben. They do if we let it. I mean, if we allow our ministries or even what we want to consume as people who, you know, hear the words of God being preached, if if we want to move towards the area of only the miraculous in the terms of physical healing and that kind of stuff and have no uh, appetite uh, for the matters of the soul and the spirit and for the matters of eternity, uh, we do ourselves a disservice, and I'm afraid we may lead some people to a Christless eternity. So let's focus on the main thing. And the main thing is always Christ died for our sins and provided us access to the Father. That's the main thing. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A Firm Grip on the Gospel, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You've heard it said before that God is always with us, but sometimes it can be difficult to grasp what we know to be true. If that has ever been your experience, then you'll want to check out Dr. John's newest book called In All Things, God's Providence. Throughout its 190 pages, Dr. John unravels the mystery behind the doctrine of God's providence in a way we can all understand and appreciate. This book illustrates how God directs and upholds all aspects of our lives. So for this month only, Back to the Bible Canada is offering In All Things for a special feature price of only $5, or you can download the digital copy for free at backtothebible.ca. Act now because next month, 
the book will be at its regular price of $17.99 or $3.99 per download. You can order your copy at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.